no one in their right mind ever goes looking for suffering. Now, some people do, but it's questionable as to whether they're in their right mind as they do so. Since we live in a fallen world, suffering is going to find us. We don't really need to go looking for it. We don't need to encourage it. But at the same time, we recognize that God can use suffering to draw us ever closer to himself. And wouldn't we have to say that ultimately that's a good thing? If that's the ultimate result, that after a period of suffering, a period of trial, a period of pain, because suffering is pain for what they would call it suffering. So we do have to recognize that. But if we end up being closer to God when it's all finished, then we don't, don't we have to recognize that ultimately that's a good thing? There's an old Roman proverb that reads, misfortune does not always come to injure. And that's a true statement. It's during these periods of our lives when we're in the midst of the battle that we experience the grace of God most deeply, where we experience his presence most acutely. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Root of Righteousness, wrote this. He said, the flaming desire to rid every unholy thing of our lives and to put on the likeness of Christ at any cost is not often found among us. We expect to enter the everlasting kingdom of our Father and to sit down around the table with sages and saints and martyrs, and through the grace of God, maybe we shall. Yes, maybe we shall. But for most of us, it could prove at first an embarrassing experience. Ours might be the silence of the untried soldier in the presence of battle-hardened heroes who have fought the fight and have won the victory and who have the scars to prove that they were present when the battle was joined. Tozer continues by saying that it's necessary for God to use suffering in his providence of preparing his children for service and for life. And then he added these words, it's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he's hurt him deeply. When I first came across that quote, it bothered me, quite frankly. I don't like the way he put that. I think he might could have put it a little more delicately. But the truth is that God does allow pain to come into our life, to get our attention, and to strengthen us in a way that prosperity never could. I think of Moses. He was a man who was placed in a position of prominence by the providence of God. Think about it. He was put in a river, and Pharaoh's daughter finds him. That's providential, and you would think that was enough. He was brought up in the palace, but that wasn't enough. If he was going to lead God's people out of Egypt and into freedom, he needed to be trained. So God trained him for 40 years, 40 years of difficulty, so he would be prepared to lead God's people out of bondage. David was a man who succeeded very early in life. Now, I don't think David was 12 or 13 when he fought Goliath. He was probably more like 17 or 18 if we look at the chronologies uh, as I think they should be viewed. But still, he had a great victory in the beginning. The battle is the Lord's. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that taunts the armies of the living God? And then, then he wipes out the biggest enemy of Israel in just a few seconds. And the battle is won, and he's a military hero, but he still wasn't ready to lead God's people. And so God put him on the run for 10 years, 
running for his life for 10 years and had to learn total dependence upon God in that period. That seemed to me he was already there. Wouldn't you like to be at the place that David was when he went out to fight Goliath? I would like to be David at 18 years old. But David at 18 wasn't ready to lead Israel. David at 30 was ready because God put him through a decade of testing. He had to be prepared. And I'm sure if you'd asked David, he would have rather done it a different way. Isn't there a book I can read, Lord? Isn't there a series of tapes? Isn't there a conference that I can go to and get this down? And the Lord said, no. I'm going to have to put you through the fire. If I'm going to use you greatly, then I've got to test you greatly. Now, maybe that's a better way to put it than, than hurt you deeply. But the principle's there. Sometimes we have to go through suffering. Peter, oh, Peter, he suffered one of the greatest humiliations anybody could ever suffer, denying the Lord who bought him, denying his best friend. I don't even know that man. And when that rooster crowed, after the third denial, he went out and wept bitterly. I think that was probably one of the lowest points of anybody's life in history. Can you imagine being Peter at that point? But God knew Peter had to go through that because he was on his high horse, so to speak. Just hours before that, he says, I'm not, they, they might abandon you. I'm never going to abandon you. I'll fight for you to the end. Oh, will you, Peter? Will you really fight for me to the end? Peter had to be trained. Oh, and then Paul who we'll consider this morning, went through a mountain of suffering after his conversion in preparation for his apostolic ministry. And then even during his apostolic ministry, he was on a suffering maintenance plan, so to speak, to keep him focused. You'll remember some of the things that we studied in, in our previous study. This was two weeks ago. I just break into the middle of the passage. He says, are they servants of Christ? I, I, I speak as if I'm insane. I'm more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, offered in danger of death. Now, this is, by the way, after he gave his life to Christ, not before. This is to prepare him for the ministry that he was to be given. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I've spent in the deep. By the way, I read a secular history recently, and they call that the most famous shipwreck of all history. I think that's an interesting one. I would have thought it would be the Titanic. They mentioned the Apostle Paul. Very interesting. Verse 26, I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardships through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such things, there's a daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. Now, if it's been me, I'd say, Lord, I get it. I really, I do get it. After, the one, after one of the beatings, you wouldn't have to beat me twice. I get it after the first one. But Paul had such an important role to play in the body of Christ. God knew that he had to not only get Paul's attention, but keep Paul's attention. In this previous section that I just referenced, he'd been boasting about his sufferings. He didn't want to boast about his sufferings. That was the last thing on his mind. But because his opponents were boasting about theirs, he felt like he was forced into a position to say, these guys are telling you all the great things that they've done. Well, there's a couple things I've done too. Now, he, he doesn't want to brag about it because ultimately he says, listen, if I'm going to boast anything, I'm going to boast in Jesus. And today we're going to see him make a statement that shows me that he got it when it comes to suffering. 
Now he continues in verse 1 of chapter 12. Read along with me these first six verses. He says, Boasting is necessary, though it's not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know of a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. If I do wish to boast, I shall not be foolish, for I shall be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this, so that no one may credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. This is a bit confusing because on the one hand, it looks like Paul's talking about somebody else. And then it really seems in other, in other places like this is autobiographical, like he's talking about himself. Uh, this does occur in the middle of his boasting section where he's bragging about what he's done. He's also going to talk about later how he received a thorn in the flesh because of the surpassing value of the revelations that were given to him, the revelations that were given to him. And in context, then, we have to understand that the person Paul is talking about is actually himself. Even though in the first part of it, it's a, it's a bit awkward because it does seem to be anonymous. As the passage goes on, it becomes very clear Paul's talking about himself. He's the one that was brought up into the third heaven. This incident occurred when Paul was probably in his early 40s. So this was something that happened before Paul's first missionary journey. After he's converted, he goes back to Jerusalem, he goes into the desert, he goes back to Tarsus, and he spends oh, about, a, about a dozen or, or so silent years, so-called silent years, back in his hometown before he comes out and does the first missionary journey. So this vision occurred at some point early on in his ministry. He was taken up to heaven. I think that's what the passage is speaking about when he calls it the third heaven. The Bible speaks of different levels of heaven. One is just the atmosphere, one's the stars. But this is beyond that into the abode of God. He's taken up into heaven and he sees or actually hears some things which either could not be expressed or must not be expressed. Again in verse 4, I was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. The Greek term for this is oretos, which can really be translated two ways. And, and I know this is a bit technical, but this is really, really important for you to get. This particular part, this particular word could be understood in English as could not be expressed or must not be expressed. Those are the two most likely definitions for this word in this passage. Could not be expressed or must not be expressed. I want to pause here and very respectfully, very respectfully, render you an opinion, a pastoral opinion. It's not word of God. This is just my opinion based upon the study of the word of God. I've been asked many times by folks inside our church, many of you that are sitting here today, both inside our church and outside our church, about my opinion about the accounts of those who have had experiences that have been termed near death. 
There are a lot of books written about it. You're quite familiar with this, I'm, I'm fairly certain. Some of these are quite popular. Some of those who have experienced these things speak in churches quite a bit, speak at conferences. And I have no doubt at all that these folks did experience something. My own uncle, who was more like my big brother, I was 21, he was 25 when he got lymphatic cancer and died fairly quickly. He had an experience right before death. I wouldn't call it one of the 90 minutes in heaven kind of thing because he had the experience and then he went ahead and died. So I, I know sometimes people see something. I do not doubt their experience. Some people have died, they've entered heaven or what, what they view to be heaven and they come back knowing things that they didn't know before knowing things that there was no other way that they could know. Their descriptions of the afterlife often contain many similarities between accounts, but just as often there are factors that are contradictory in their accounts. Most all the people that have experienced something like this tell of a, of a feeling of extreme contentment while they're there and a reluctance to come back or even a regret. And I know a great many of you have taken comfort in these accounts. And I've got to tell you, I take great comfort in the account that Uncle Tom, Uncle Tommy, gave right before he died. Because I've told you before, some of you might not have known this is who I was talking about, but when he was about to die, I went up to the hospital to give him the gospel. He was angry with me that day because, uh, so I didn't give him the gospel that day. It had to do with his calcium levels of all things to get upset about. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have anything to do with his calcium levels, but, but uh, I didn't give him the gospel that day. And I left. And I just was just, just ripping myself to shreds all the way home, uh, my hour drive home. And I thought, well, I'm going to go back tomorrow and I'm going to give him the gospel because I wasn't at all convinced of his salvation. I went back the next day, and he was, as they do with cancer patients, sometimes he was all morphined up, curled up in a ball, and couldn't even talk to me. And I went out of the room and wept. That, that day I wasn't frustrated. I wasn't beating myself up all the way home. I was weeping all the way home because I thought I had just blown the opportunity for his salvation. What I didn't know was that the Lord is a lot bigger than me. If he wants to get the message to somebody, he can do it. And there was a little Pentecostal lady that was wandering the halls that really had no business being there. I don't know that she had permission to be there. She went in the room, gave him the gospel. After I left, he accepted Christ. Isn't God a lot bigger than we think? So then, uh, just a few days later, when it came time for him to die, he saw something that was absolutely beautiful, called his parents over and said, listen, after actually having been in a semi-coma for quite some, you know, for many hours, saw something extremely beautiful, was totally coherent, called my grandmother and grandfather over to the bed, said, can't you see it? Isn't it beautiful? They said, well, I don't see it. What do you see? And he said, listen, don't worry about me. I'll see you in heaven. He closed his eyes and he died. Now, that's a great comfort to me. And I think the Lord might have even given that story so that I could have comfort even today. And, and I know I'm going to probably have to deal with that in heaven for eternity and say so we played golf together but you wouldn't give me the gospel <laughs> we played ball together as kids but you wouldn't give me the gospel yeah I learned a lesson there but but it, it encouraged me and I know that some of the books encourage you too but I want you to be careful about a couple of things before you make these account the, these accounts the primary basis for your comfort if you do a careful search of the internet or of, of the literature period of these accounts, 
you'll find that while many of the people that are expressing this blissful feeling in this vision of heaven are Christians, an equal number are non-Christians. And they seem to experience the same thing. Now, not everybody. Some became religious as a result of the experience. Others did not. In addition, again, if you just look at the literature there doesn't seem to be any great difference between the experiences of this near-death experience of those who are Christian and those who are not Christian. They all seem to experience the same thing. Now, not everybody. There was a man named Howard Storm who had an experience that he described as hellacious. He was a non-Christian. He had this after-death experience or near-death experience. He described it as going to hell. He came back and became a believer. In the Lord Jesus Christ. So there, there are some of those. But people don't usually write books about it. Howard did, but most people don't. And most importantly, in my view, and I, and I do say this humbly, and I say it as your pastor, charged with teaching you the truth of the Word of God and preparing you to enter heaven someday, the Apostle Paul was, well, an apostle. He was ordained by God to write Scripture under the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we know from Scripture that Paul was called up into heaven. We know that objectively. From Scripture, an apostle writing. We believe it because it's, we believe the Scriptures to be inerrant. So we know Paul was there. And yet he relates in Scripture, that what he experienced was oretos. It either could not be expressed or must not be expressed. And again, please, I know a lot of you are very big fans of these. I'm just giving you my opinion. But this is my opinion. If Paul, who's an apostle, and we know he was there, comes back and says, the stuff I saw was eretos. Either I can't express it, even under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, I can't tell you what it was like. Or I must not tell you what it's like. That word can be understood both ways with equal validity. Then all I'm saying is this. Buy the books. Read the books. Enjoy the books. If, if that's what you want to do, please do. I, I don't, especially the ones who are Christian, I have no doubt as to their sincerity. But just don't make those the primary source of your comfort. There's plenty in the Scripture to take comfort from. There's more than enough. There's an abundance. There's an ocean of material in the Scripture to give you comfort. Take your primary comfort from there. All right. Verse 7. And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Now, again, the revelations... Paul's not talking about just the general revelation he's been given or the general special revelation he's been given. He's talking about this specific revelation of heaven because this was so extraordinary and because he didn't want to take credit for something that he shouldn't have taken credit for. He didn't want people to think more of him than they should have thought. He didn't want him to think more of himself than he should have thought because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. So Paul certainly recognizes that this is a unique experience that he's had, and it's a great privilege 
to receive revelation concerning heaven that others were not privy to. And that, that revelation could have made him prideful. Remember, this happened early on in his ministry, shortly after he's converted. It could have made him very prideful. The truth is, if you see a book about heaven, and it's 500 pages, a description of heaven that's 500 pages, you're going to have to know most of that is the product of someone's imagination. Because quite frankly, the Bible doesn't tell us that much about heaven. Now maybe a pamphlet or maybe a booklet about heaven in terms of what it's like, or maybe something like C.S. Lewis's The Weight of Glory or his essay Heaven or the preface to The Great Divorce. Those are tremendous pieces on heaven where Lewis takes a bit of information and I think does use his imagination in a, in a valid way. So there are things about that, but even that is... It's probably only about this thick, and if you're, on, you're listening on tape, I'm, probably, I'm holding my fingers maybe a half inch apart. It's not much, and I think that's some of the best material that's ever been written, frankly. But, but we just don't know a lot about heaven. This would have been a great place to tell us if that had been the apostle's point. But that's not the point of his passage here. In fact, God felt like, because he gave, us, gave him these revelations, and I kind of have an idea as to why, because Paul was kind of... He was going to suffer in the ministry. He's going to be martyred for the ministry. I think it's really got, nice for God to give him a little glimpse of what was going to come in the future. But because of this, God sends, get this, God sends a thorn in the flesh. There was no room in Paul's life for pride. So he sends him this thorn to keep him in check. Like Job, centuries before, God permitted Satan to personally attack the Apostle Paul. And like Job, this was part of something bigger than just the Apostle Paul's comfort. Job's suffering was part of a larger divine drama between God and Satan, this courtroom in heaven. Paul's suffering would ultimately benefit all of those who have been touched by his ministry. And you know who's included in that? Us. We've all been blessed by the Apostle Paul's ministry. This thorn in the flesh that Paul suffered ultimately benefited me because it kept Paul on track. Now, Paul was a smart guy. He was an educated guy. He was a guy of passion and energy. And Paul could have easily decided, I can do this on my own. I can write this stuff without any help. Well, no, Paul, you couldn't. In order for Paul to really get accomplished what God wanted him to accomplish, he had to stay humble. And he had to continually, day by day, look to God for help. Every moment of every day, he had to look to God for help. Now, what the thorn in the flesh was, I love to say I can tell you right now tonight, <laughs> I have no clue. Do you have a clue? No. You know the reason we don't have a clue? Because we stick to the text. <laughs> we don't know. Paul didn't choose to tell us what the thorn in the flesh was. Now, there have been oh, a multitude of ideas about what it possibly could have been, and I'm not going to run through that roster because I don't have a clue, and neither does anybody else. The text doesn't say, and that's for a reason. And this is the reason, I think, is because all suffering is very personal. And it's very relative. Some people lose their spouse to death, and it shatters them. Other people lose their spouse to death, and it's a release for them. And I've talked to both times. 
So you, so you can't just compare that. Well, I've lost my spouse. Well, I've lost my spouse. It's very personal. And what, what hurts one person deeply may not bother another person at all. What bothers me may seem trivial to you. And what bothers you may seem insignificant to me. Had Paul disclosed what this thorn was, I'm, I'm afraid it would have hurt us more than helped us. Because we would have said, that's your problem, Paul? You can't get over that? You had a real problem. I did that with a relative one time. I was on the phone with her. She expressed her problem to me. I wasn't real sympathetic. I told her she needed to get a real problem. Um, didn't work. Wouldn't recommend that. No. One more note here quickly, a quick excursus. Just be really careful about filling in blanks where God doesn't do it. Don't read books about what the thorn in the flesh was. If God's intentionally left them blank, he left them blank for a reason. And I wouldn't trust an expositor who consistently does that. Because a lot of times they're just using their imagination, they're filling in the blanks, and that's not powerful. What's powerful is what comes from the Word of God. It's bad method. And to imply that you figured out something that nobody else can figure out, I figured out what the thorn in the flesh was. For 2,000 years, nobody's known what that was. To, to imply that is a bit prideful and a little bit self-serving. But we can say this, whatever this thorn in the flesh was, it was extremely uncomfortable. It was extremely painful to the Apostle Paul. And it lasted, apparently, for quite some time. But at the same time, in fact, they may have, may have lasted even to the writing of this. It's possible that the thorn in the flesh was still there. But at the same time, it was purposeful. God doesn't allow suffering to come our way without a purpose. Here the suffering was to keep Paul from exalting himself, thinking too much of himself. It was to remind him that God had everything under control. Yeah, Paul, you're smart. Yes, Paul, you're educated. Maybe one of the smartest people of his day. Again, you know, secular historians will recognize that. That the Apostle Paul might have been one of the greatest intellects of all time. Even a secular historian would recognize that. And that's something that we could fall back upon if we were prideful. Successful people in life have to be very careful in thinking that they're the ones that brought themselves that success. People who are energetic, People were powerful. But God had to constantly remind Paul, listen, this is my ministry, not yours. It's got your name on it, but it's my ministry. I'm going to put you in the places that I want to put you, and I'm going to empower you to do what I want you to do. So don't get the big head. Paul wasn't successful in ministry because of who he was. Now, that, it, it helped. God uses our preparation, but that's not why he was successful. He was successful because God was with him. God was with him. You remember the patriarchs? We pass by that phrase sometimes and just let it roll off of our lips. God was with Abraham. God was with Isaac. God was with Jacob. But it's more than just omnipresence. God was with him. Fear thou not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. This is more than just God being in the room with you. If God is with us, if God is for us, who can be against us. You see, the God who created this universe is on your side through the suffering. He spoke 
and the world came into existence. He's on your side through this suffering. He, he also allowed it to happen. Nothing's going to come your way that hasn't passed through the fingers of God first. Know that. And know it has a purpose. And yes, it's painful. I'm not one to minimize anybody's suffering here this morning. It's painful. And some of you, I know, are suffering greatly this morning. Either because of some physical ailment that you have. Something that you're wondering if it's going to take your life from you. You're suffering because one of your loved ones has a physical ailment. One of your friends does. You're suffering because of an economic issue or an interpersonal relationship issue. I know you're suffering. It's true. And we don't need to sugarcoat and act like we're not. People, we live in a fallen world. That's why we suffer. But there's a purpose for it. And Paul needed to be reminded. And that's why in verse 8, Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. You know, sometimes people say, I've had someone tell me, listen, I prayed about that once. God heard me the first time. If he had wanted to take care of it, he would take care of it the first time. I'm not going to bother him with it again. That's not a biblical principle. Keep on knocking. Keep on asking. Those are present imperatives. Paul's been actually criticized for praying three times here. That's, that's not the point of this. He shouldn't be criticized. Perfectly legitimate. Three times he asked God to remove it. And then God said to him, apparently this was direct revelation, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Now there's a word there that's not in the text, but it's implied. So it's legitimate for me to insert it. My power is perfected in your weakness. Because God has no weaknesses. Paul's going to say in a minute, when I'm, when I'm weak, that's when I'm the strongest. My grace is sufficient for you. Now, when we started the study of 2 Corinthians quite a few months ago, if I would have asked you to kind of write down your favorite verse in 2 Corinthians, that would have probably been it, right? Your favorite phrase. And here, now we've gotten to it. And now you see where it is in context. It's in this overall section where Paul's boasting and he doesn't want to. And he's had to boast, watch this, he's had to boast about the things that were really great in most people's minds. You know, I suffered all these things for you, Jesus, and I didn't quit. Now he talks about this revelation that he got, and then because of the revelation, to keep him humble, God sent him this thorn in the flesh. He asked three times for it to be removed. It's not removed. And then God says, Paul, my grace, it's enough. My grace is enough for you. My grace was enough to save you, Paul. On that Damascus rose, that was my grace. That was enough. My grace is going to be what gets you into heaven, Paul. Paul had the privilege of writing those words, didn't he? For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, lest any man should boast. If you're here this morning, if you've never personally placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I want you to know it's grace. And that means that somebody else paid a price. That it's a gift. It's a courtesy of God. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Not join a church, not give money, not do good things. All those are fine after salvation because they were ordained for us. But no, salvation is by grace through faith. It's what God, it's got, what got Paul saved in the first place. It's what keeps him saved. It's the grace of God, the sovereignty of God. And it's sufficient. It's enough. Now, can we say that? Do we want more? 
God's not rebuking Paul for praying three times. He's not rebuking Paul for asking for the thorn to be removed. He's not going to rebuke you for asking God to heal the cancer or to heal your marriage or to take care of your children. He's not going to rebuke you for that. He wants you to ask him for that. He desperately wants you to ask him for everything, every aspect of life, from your business to your personal life to your health, everything he wants to be a part of. So he's not rebuking him at all. It's perfectly legitimate. It's actually perfectly rational. But in this case, God says, no, Paul, I'm not going to end this. At least not right now. But I'm going to see you through it. Depend upon me. I love you, Paul. I allowed this for your good and for my glory. My grace is enough for you, Paul. Divine power finds its full expression only in human weakness. The greater the Christian's acknowledged weakness the more evident Christ's enabling strength. Once we realize that we can't do it, God says, well, I'm glad you finally came to that conclusion. I've been waiting. Now hold my hand, or I'm going to hold your hand, and let's do it. I'm going to do it for you. Now he's going to do it through you, of course. Our service is done through him, but it's in his empowerment. Most of you know Gary Horton. Gary's an evangelist, one of the most powerful speakers that I've ever known. I mean, a really great guy. Right before I went into ministry, I met Gary for dinner. Before he did a, a set of, I guess you'd call them conferences, to, to high schools here in town. And i never forget what Gary told me. He said, when you get to be a pastor, you prepare and you prepare and you prepare. Go to seminary, study, learn the languages, learn the background, learn how to do exegesis. But don't you ever get up and preach in front of people without praying this prayer or something like it. Lord, I can't do it on my own. This is only going to happen if you make it happen. Please, Lord, speak your word to your people for your glory through me today. And I'll tell you, I've taken that advice. I've never got up to speak where I don't sit there or somewhere else and I pray that silently to myself before you. Not, not as a mantra, but really. God's grace is enough. And the weaker we recognize, the, the more we recognize our own weakness, the more God's power can be manifested through us. If we think we're all that, God has this kind of sense of humor, sense of irony, says you think you're all that, okay. Go on out there, let's see how you do on your own without me. You'll fall flat on your face. We all will. And this doesn't just relate to pastors. It relates to all of us, no matter what it is we're doing. Whether it's we're giving the gospel to a neighbor or we're working at a good news club or serving at the crisis pregnancy center or whether we're ushering or whether we're teaching a Sunday school class, no matter what it is, every activity of daily life needs to be empowered by God. When we honestly, and that's a key word, we have to honestly concede our inability to get the job done, then we're acknowledging God's capacity to get it done. 
And that's why Paul will conclude this real powerful presentation by saying, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. This has to be understood in this context. Remember, Paul has been boasting reluctantly, hasn't wanted to, about his strength, about his accomplishments, about all this suffering that he had taken upon himself or had been given to him. And he only engaged in it to make a point with respect to his enemies, but now he comes to the end of this and he can't help himself. Enough of this boasting about what I've been through. It's like he can't help himself. He said they can brag about what they've done if they want to. That's essentially what he's saying. Let them brag. But I'm going to boast about the one who's doing the work through me. If there's anybody in this life that needs to be boasted about, it's not us. It's Jesus Christ. Feel free to brag about him. All day, every day. Tell people how wonderful he is, what he's done for you. Testimonies are powerful, by the way. Don't discount them. Testimonies are real powerful in personal evangelism. What has he done for us? He's the one that we should be bragging about. I'm going to boast about the one who works through me, Paul will say. The more I recognize my own inability, the more his power is manifested in my life. And then in verse 10, therefore I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. He's reviewing that roster that I mentioned as the sermon began that we studied two weeks ago. That's okay by me. Paul said, I'm okay about the beatings and the imprisonments and the shipwrecks. I'm okay with all that. I'm even okay with all the daily pressure for the churches. And he's talking about the Corinthians there, I'm sure. I'm okay with all that. Why am I okay? For Christ's sake. Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So if I'm going to brag about something, I'm going to brag about how weak I am and how strong God is. Amen to that. Amen to that. I'm weak. God's strong. He gets the glory. That's the way it should be. God says here on, earth, on this earth, we're not going to share in his glory. Now, in heaven, in some way, in some ineffable way, means indescribable, a toast. In some indescribable way, we're going to share in his glory then, but, but in a different way. I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another. We should take a, take a reference from that, from the Old Testament. Nobody needs to come around and brag about what they've done, but we need to brag about what God did. That's the point. Somebody gets saved, brag about how great God is. Because you might have given them the gospel, but you're just a dandified messenger boy or girl. That's what I am. I know, I've known that from the beginning. I'm just a dandified messenger boy. This is not my message. This is not my power. This is God's power. I guess someday we could just read the text and go home. This, it's his power. Paul understood that. When we recognize that it's not all about us, but it's all about God, then we can be content in whatever the circumstance we find ourselves. When we recognize that, honestly. Now, this is not a promise that the pain's going to go away. In fact, if you've noticed, that, that's not what happened. We never read that, well, the, and then six months later, God took the thorn out. Praise God. He's praising God even though it seems like that thorn stayed for a while. What a paradox. The weaker we recognize that we are, the stronger we really become. 
Meaning the more we come face to face with our own inability to handle the problems of life and turn to God for help, the stronger we become. On the other hand, the more we think we can handle it ourselves, apart from God, the weaker we become. I loved John Wayne and the rugged individualism that he expressed in those films. All right, he may not, may not have been the best actor, but I still loved. <laughs> I recognize it. He was no Leonardo DiCaprio. All right, he's no, no Tom Hanks. How about that one? All right. But I love that rugged individualism. But I got to tell you, that's a fantasy world. Those westerns, that's fantasy. That wasn't real. None of us are strong enough or smart enough or energetic enough to handle what life throws at us by ourselves. We need God. And heaven help us if we ever become so prideful we don't recognize that. And God wants us to acknowledge it. I think first he wants us to acknowledge it just with us and him. In our private prayers. Before, before we ever get out of the bed in the morning, Lord, I need you today. I needed you last night, and I'm going to need you tomorrow. I can't do this on my own. you got to help me, Lord. Now, I know that's counterintuitive for an American culture that's steeped in rugged individualism. I, I know that's, that's part of our DNA, our genetics. And I have, I'm all for passion and energy and education and intelligence. I'm all for all that. But we do have to recognize where it ultimately comes from. Don't, don't, don't become prideful and think it's coming only from you. Because what's going to happen? God's going to set you out there. He's going to say, okay, sport, you think it's all about you? Let's see. Let's see just how well you do. Don't put yourself in that position. So many that are listening right now do have your own thorns in the flesh. You're suffering, and it's painful. And I want to recognize one thing. I, I know some of the families that are suffering because of a loved one, that's maybe more painful than you suffering yourself. I totally get that. I recognize it. But please don't waste time trying to handle whatever you're going through without God. Stop right now. Right this minute and turn it over to him. Ask him to get you through it. And if it's a loved one, then ask, ask him to get the loved one through it, too. Yes, it's perfectly legitimate to ask him to take away the thorn. We have a prayer meeting for that every Wednesday night where we ask God to take away a lot of thorns. It's a great time. If, if you're ever available on a Wednesday night about 7 o'clock, come over to the other campus. We need people praying for our congregation. So it's, it's perfectly legitimate. And he may very well do it. We've got a roster of things that he's helped people with. But the suffering that you're enduring might, it just might be part of something that's bigger than you. Just like the divine drama in Job or like what was designed to help Paul to stay humble so he could provide this special service for Christ. Either way, God's got this under control. He's got your back. He's holding your hand. So relax. God's grace is enough. It is sufficient. Divine power finds its 
full expression only in human weakness. The greater the Christian's acknowledged weakness, the more evident Christ's enabling strength. Heavenly Father, we all need you. We needed you for salvation, and we need you to help us get through this life. We thank you for our prosperity when it comes. We know that comes from you. And when times of difficulty come, we know that they didn't get to us without you first thinking about it, without you first allowing it. Father, we ask you to help us through the trials of life. And since I know there are people here this morning, my Lord, that are suffering, I, I pray you help them specifically. They know who they are. They are a multitude this morning. I, I pray that you would touch them in a very special way today so that they experience your love and your power like they've never done it before. And may the time that the sun goes down tonight, may there be a comfort upon their soul because they know that your grace is sufficient for them. And I'll ask it in Jesus' name.